died without ever seeing the Messiah or knowing the Messiah. So the Bible is full of examples of people who waited in hope for something. Waited in hope in God for something. And they didn't get what they were hoping for. That doesn't mean God wasn't faithful. They didn't get in this life that they were hoping. So uh, the key words today we're going to look at is hope. This, the, book, the, 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 the word shows up quite a bit in the book of Hebrews. So we're still going to do Hebrews in the next few weeks. We're going to take it from the angle of hope. Let me just kind of give you a simple definition of hope. Again, we think about Christmas or hope is simply the expectation of something good. When you hope for something, you're expecting something good. I hope for a new job. I hope to get pregnant. I hope to get married. I hope for a better house. I hope IU beats Purdue. I hope IU beats Fort Wayne. Sorry about that one. I didn't. <laughs> but we have all these hopes. Hope is an expectation of something good. Right? It's connected to things like uh, trust. It's connected to waiting. It's connected to yearning and desire and something that you hope for kind of deep inside. When you're living in hope, you're free from anxiety and fear because you're hopeful. The question with hope is, is it a hope that's a projection of my own expectations or is it hope grounded in the character of God to be good to me all the time, good, good father? So hope, but hope is the expectation of good. Now where the good comes from or what the good we're envisioning, again, whether it's from me or whether it comes from God's character is what you have to be able to trust with, but hope is the expectation that something good will happen in you. So when you say, you know, or you always have all my hopes and prayers are with you, and sometimes we say that kind of generically, but in the biblical sense, hope is the expectation of good because our confidence in the goodness of the heart of God. So um, we all understand hope. We all, and, and actually look at Hebrews, we'll just go through like seven passages where that word occurs, we're going to read through them all, just to kind of, again, kind of anchor that word in our hearts. And then I have to, I'm going to read something later, and then I have some questions at the end of the sermon. I'll ask you about your hope and how are you feeling with hopes that seem to be kind of distant or un unfulfilled, all right? So chapter 3 of Hebrews, but Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house, and we are God's house, if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ, remember, hope is expectation of good, endurance and trust and desire all kind of packed in. Next passage. Hebrews chapter 6. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. All right? Next chapter 6 a while as well. Therefore we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us to the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Let me just remind you again, the original readers, the recipients of the, the letter of the Hebrews, the people who were living in Rome, about 64, 65 AD, had started feeling some degree of persecution, whether it was social persecution, whatever, because they followed Jesus. They were about to even engage in more persecution or experience more persecution. So even reading from their point of view, when you think about that, this hope, they're, they're, they're angry on this hope. They want to know there's an anger of hope. 
They want to sell their expectation of good the world to them, but starting to crumble around. All right, next passage, two more Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. So the law never made anything perfect, but now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Next one, Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. There's probably a really good definition of hope there, the trustworthiness of God. One more. Chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. So you see where this hope is connected with faith. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. So we're all hoping for things in our lives. Some of you, I'm sure, are hoping for a better job, better salary, better financial situation. Hoping for a better marriage, hoping to get married, hoping to get pregnant, hoping whatever. But we're all hoping, and we, you know, we, not all hopes, their hopes aren't bad, they're just who we are as human beings. But how do we deal with hopes that don't uh, come to fruition in the way or timing that we think they should? So I want to kind of start with that in this week, and the next few weeks we'll unpack some of the things about hope. That's why the pastor will keep us about this. But to do this, what I want to do today, I want to actually read from a, a couple pages from the book. I've never read a passage as long, I think, in church before. But I want, this one is going to be, uh, this one I want to do, because it, I think you'll relate to this. It's from a book by our name, Philip Yancey. And the, the, the title of the book is called This is the Book of God. So it's about how do you deal with times when the hope that you thought was being promised you doesn't end up in the way you thought it should. Right. So this is the author, Philip Yancey, talking about a conversation he had with a young man who he was somewhat mentoring helped this young man write a book. He was a graduate student in theology. And um, the young man had all these hopes of what God would do. And you'll see how, how he responded to the, to the hopes that weren't fulfilled in the time of the way that he thought. That God would never let them down. So, so just uh, pretend there's a fireplace behind me and you're all in nice soft chairs. Um, I'll just read it off. It's been a couple pages long, but it's So it all start with a conversation in one part of this before it starts. He said, I watched as the lines of tension working in his jaw, and he said to me, I hate God. He said, they blurted it out. No, I don't mean that. I don't even believe in God. I said nothing to the author's speaking. I said nothing. In fact, I said very little for the next three hours. As Richard told me a story, beginning with his parents' breakup. I did everything I could to prevent that divorce, he said. I just because I just become a Christian at the university. I was naive enough to believe that God cared. I prayed nonstop, day and night, that they'd get back together. I even dropped out of school for a while and only tried to salvage my family. I thought I was doing God's will, but I think I made everything worse. It was my first bitter experience with unanswered prayer. I transferred to uh, college, the graduate school, to learn more about the faith. I figured it must, I must be doing something wrong. At this particular school where you're studying theology, I met people who used phrases like, I spoke with God, and the Lord told me. I sometimes talked like that too, but never without a twitch of guilt. Did the Lord really tell me anything? I never heard a voice. For any proof of God, I could see your touch, yet I longed for that kind of closeness. 
Each time I faced a crucial decision, I would read the Bible and pray for guidance, like you're supposed to. Whenever I felt right about the decision, I would act on it. But I swear I ended up making the wrong choice every time. Just when I really thought I understood God's will, then it would backfire. He next told me about a job opportunity that had fallen through. The employer reneged on a promise to him and hired someone else less deserving, leaving Richard with school debts and no social data. About the same time, Richard's fiance jilted him. With no warning, she broke off contact, refusing to give any explanation for her abrupt change of heart. Sharon, the fiance, had played a key role in Richard's spiritual growth, and as he left him, as she left him, he felt some disfaith to leave the way as well. They had often prayed together about their future. Now those prayers seemed like cruel jokes. Richard also had a sense of, had a series of physical problems, which only added to his sense of helplessness and depression. Wounds of rejection, suffered when his parents were separated, seemed to reopen. Had God merely been stringing him along? He visited the pastor for advice. He felt like a drowning man, he said. He wanted to trust God, but whenever he reached out to grasp the physical there. Why should he keep on believing in a God so apparently unconcerned about his well-being? To Richard, his problems were anything but minor. He could not understand why a loving Heavenly Father, a good, good Father, would let him suffer such disappointment. No earthly father would ever treat his child like that. He continued to go to church, but inside him a hard lump of cynicism began forming, a tumor of doubt. The theology he had learned in school and written about in his book, no longer works for him. It was odd, Richard told me. The more anger I directed at God, the more energy I seemed to gain. I realized that for the last several years, I had shrunk it inside myself. Now, as I started doubting and even hating the school and other Christians around me, I felt myself coming back to life. One night, something snapped. Richard attended a Sunday evening church service where he heard the usual testimonies and praise. But one report for Victor Frank with him. Earlier that week, a plane carrying nine missionaries had crashed in the Alaskan Outback, killing all board. The pastor solemnly related the details and then introduced a member of the church who had survived in an unrelated plane crash that same week. When the church member finished describing his narrow escape, the congregation responded, Praise the Lord. Lord, we thank you for bringing our brother to safety and for having our guardian angels watch over him. Please be with the families of those who died in Alaska. This prayer in Richard triggered revulsion, something like nausea in your opinion. You can't have it both ways, he thought. If God get, gets credit for the survivor, he should also get the blame for the casualties. Yet churches never hear testimonies from the grievers. What would the spouses of the dead missionaries say? Would they talk about a loving father? Richard returned to the apartment very agitated. Everything was coming to a head around one question. Is God even there? He had not seen the evidence. And then the final part of the story, I'll just skip a few pages. He actually decided to go out to the backyard and uh, burn his Bible and all of his books out there. He said, I made another ethos. He's talking about it's 4 o'clock in the morning. I made another trip upstairs, brought down another armload of books. I did this maybe eight times over the next hour. Commentary, seminary textbooks, all of them went up. I might have burned every book I owned if I hadn't been interrupted by an angry fireman and a yellow brain slicker who ran toward me shouting, What do you think you're doing? Somebody phoned an alarm. I fumbled around for excuse and I finally pulled my own and broke the crash. 
After the firemen had squirted some chemicals on my bonfire and shoved the dirt over it to let me go, I climbed the stairs as Richard now. I climbed the stairs, sank into bed, smelling of smoke. It was almost dawn by then, and at last I had peace. A great weight had lifted. I had become honest with myself. Any pretense was gone, I no longer felt the pressure to believe what I could never be sure of. I felt converted, but converted from God. So this whole book is stories like that. You might think, well, how discouraging, how depressing. But the, re the reality is, though your story may not be as traumatic as Richard's, we all have trauma. Some have big T trauma, some have small T trauma. But we all have times we're disappointed with God, and then people say, well, you should hope in God. And we don't know what to do with that, because we feel like it's a rebuke. We feel like it's, I'm supposed to feel bad for not hoping in God. But again, these passages we just read from the book of Hebrew about this hope being an anchor. And this was written to people who had experienced significant disappointment, and we're going to experience more. So as we hope in Jesus, so what does that look like? I mean, again, I just in this room alone, I, I know some of your stories about there's been some real disappointment. And disappointment then becomes disappointment in God because you can't sing. You're never going to let me down. But you feel that way. But yet, what do you do with that? Do you just stay in that kind of what he, what Richard called this, or what the author called this tumor of cynicism? Do you just stay there? How do you get out of there? What do you do? And again, you, you could read the book of Job, with all kinds of books, sometimes about people who are practical about doing and often the Hebrews keeps telling them, hope, oh, hope, oh, hope. Oh. So here's the question I'm going to uh, throw out to you. Two questions. What are you hoping for lately from Jesus? What is it you believe, or want to believe, or at least hope to believe, Jesus is going to do in your life? Maybe it's about you personally, maybe it's about your financial situation, your job situation, your marriage, the relationship with your kids, your parents, you wanted to have kids, you wanted to get rid of your kids, or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of hopes you might have. And we all have hopes. That's the first question. The follow-up question, which may be more important, I suppose, is how's the waiting period going? How are you doing in the in-between time? Because what you hope for and where you are now, how you deal with that in-between time is a large part of your journey of faith. And how are you allowing Jesus to step into those times of faith? Because whether your story's like Richard, whether your traumas may be smaller traumas, how do you invite Jesus into those situations? How do these Hebrew people Jewish people in AD 65 in Rome facing persecution. How does Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, become a part of their suffering and sadness? How do you do that? I don't have any direct, clear answers other than I inviting Jesus into those moments. Inviting Jesus into those moments, and I'll call those moments suffering, knowing that some of us are. The suffering may simply be disappointment that you didn't get a certain job, but others of your suffering might be significant suffering because of 
what's happening or not happening. It may be really kind of traumatic. But the author of the Hebrews talks a lot about suffering and disappointment and pain in so many of the words. But he also says in the passage that we've anchored the whole series on, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of this, your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And it's one of those passages that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's like, so Jesus knew joy was there, but between joy and where he was, there was suffering. So if you are going through disappointment, hopes that are dashed, suffering, however you want to phrase it, as you are going through that and you feel distant from God, there's no one who knows what you're going through more than Jesus. And I think when I think of my own life, those are the times where I, I tend to not want to invite Jesus into those moments. And I don't actually come to the realization of he knows exactly what I'm here. When I'm because the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Because he knew through that difficult suffering, pain, that there was joy on the other side. Today, one of my one author I really like is a man named the Holocaust survivor, and he talks about the two emotions that pierce the heart the most are pain and joy. And then the conclusion he kind of draws is sometimes the depth of our joy is connected to the, our willingness to connect with our sadness. So in these moments of disappointment with God, in these moments of unmet hope, I'm still going to ask you and challenge you what that is often Peter says to invite Jesus in those moments. Because there's no one that's going to have more empathy with you in those moments. Jesus is the high priest, the author of Hebrews tells who knows our weaknesses and he knows what we're going through. So in those moments, don't push Jesus away. Invite him in. Invite him into those disappointments. Um, invite him into your joy as well, but invite him into those moments where the hope that you had, you don't think is absent. And maybe you'll experience Jesus in a way, maybe he'll show up in a way you never expected because you're inviting him into the reality of where you are. So, uh, let's pray. Jesus, we... Uh, I know there's people here this morning, and I'm one of them who has felt times that uh, has felt that lately that you let me down, or you let us down. We know that you're faithful and you're always true to your promises. So in that sense, we know you never have and never will let us down. We know you are a good, good father, and in that sense, you never have and you are not and never will let us down. So what we're, what we're saying to you, God, is we need you to retool our hearts. Because we want our expectations to be anchored in you and not in ourselves. So we trust you, Jesus, with our hearts. And we want to invite you into those moments of waiting. Even as we enter the season of Advent, of waiting and expecting that comes with Christmas. We want to invite you into 
our lives, those things we're waiting for, and those things we're expecting you to do in our lives. And we want to invite you to join us in the way that we need you, God. We need you, Jesus, to be our encourager in those moments. We need you as Hebrews says to be our high priest. We need to be we need you to be with us and for us. So all of us here would you give us part of it? We ask this all in your name. Amen. Um, every Sunday we finish with communion. Uh, and we do that. I said this every Sunday too. We do that first. The high point of what we do is, is remembering Jesus, remembering his promises. And he said, Do this in remembrance of me when he said this to the disciples and I he was betrayed. So whenever you eat this, you remember. We're remembering the promises of Jesus that he's with us, he never leaves us, he never forsakes us. He does never, he never leaves us or forsakes us. He never, he never walks away. We may feel let down, but it's not because he's left us or forsaken us. So as you take this morning, as you take the bread and the, and the juice, maybe during this season of expecting Advent, you invite Jesus into whatever you're waiting for. Whatever you believe, even if you believe God told you it was going to happen, invite Jesus into what you're waiting for. Be in the midst of that. So here's how we did it in Exodus. As we sing the last uh, couple songs, um, come on up. We don't know what's this by road. Just come up. Uh, somebody offer the bread. Uh, you tear up the piece yourself. Somebody offer you the cup. And you're 